Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. for reading scripture to us this morning. Uh, Let's thank our worship team as well for leading us into the presence of Jesus. Are are, Are you excited to be here today? All right, turn to your neighbor and say, man, I'm so glad you're here. Just tell them, hey man, you look really good. All right, turn to your other neighbor and say, I don't know, go Blue Duke Blue Devils. Two weeks ago, it was the Boise State Broncos. Last week, it was Gonzaga. This week, it's going to be Duke. Every team I root for, they lose. So, man, I don't know what it is. Today, quickly, so we get into the word. First, um, from the outside, I want to thank you all for uh, your prayers, as my dad mentioned, for our family. And I want to thank you for all the the food and just the support and all the wonderful texts that that we uh, received from you. My grandmother was an amazing woman, 101. That's just amazing. My great aunt was 107. And uh, my grandma's sister is still alive at 96. My great-grandparents were 95 and 96. So thank you, Lord, for some good genes, right? Um, but my grandmother was a wonderful woman. And she lived a full life. And uh, we, we dearly miss her. But honestly, I, she's in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And heaven is a, it's a beautiful place. It's more, this is what I tell my kids. It's more real than our space down here. I don't think she wants to come back. You know, and so, but we we dearly miss her. So again, thank you for all your your prayers and your encouragement and all the wonderful food. Thank you for that. So today I'm going to be talking about Jesus. Everyone say Jesus, Jesus, and um, the dreaded word that we never speak about in church. Are you ready for this? Okay, you ready? Come on, are you ready? Jesus and evangelism. Jesus and evangelism. So we begin in verse, our passage in Luke chapter 5, we begin with verses 4 through 6 as Christy read them. And uh, Peter is, he's observing Jesus as the story goes. And Jesus um, looks to Peter after he teaches and says, hey, I want you to get back into your boat. You've been washing nets, your nets, which means you're finished. Uh, but, But I want you to launch out into the deep and I want you to catch more fish. So Peter's like, ah, I'm a fisherman. You're a carpenter. I don't know if this is going to work out. But nevertheless, everyone say nevertheless. I'm going to trust you, Jesus, because there's something about you. The, the French call it je ne sais quoi, right? There's like a quality about you that um, I'm just going to, I'm going to trust you. So he trusts Jesus. He gets back into his boat. He goes out into the deep and he catches an astonishing amount of fish. So my question, I like it when you talk to me. What do you think that is? I'm going to stop there. What do you think that is? Catching an astonishing amount of fish. Go ahead and talk to me. What was that? Obedience, great. What else? Miracles. Abundance, awesome. First service, someone yelled out lunch. So that's great, yeah. I like the common sense-ness of that. Anything else? Anointing. Those are all great answers, but you're wrong. The answer is grace. 
So here, really quick, Luke chapter five gives us in miniature a, the, the order of Jesus' spirituality. Okay, so did I make that clear? So Christianity has an order to it, a sequence to it, and it always begins with grace. How many of you have been in our sermon series over the last like seven, eight weeks? We talked about Jesus and spirituality, Jesus and grace, Jesus and truth. So I just want to review something really quick. God always starts with disruptive grace. Grace is when God takes the initiative and disrupt, disrupts our lives, not because we deserve anything. Can I get an amen to that? But because God is lavish in his goodness. So grace, by definition, is disruptive. It takes our life and turns it upside down. The fancy word for, for this kind of grace or this definition of grace is incongruous, which simply means, in the words of one author, is that God takes the hardest cases. Are you a hard case here today? God takes the hardest cases, or even the simplest cases, but he loves to specialize in the hardest cases. And especially in the case of Paul, he takes the wildest and most violent act of persecutors and transforms Paul not only into a Christian, but into a transformed or trusted apostle. If God can do that, there's no one out there, no heart so hard, no anger so bitter. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that it remains outside the reach of God's patient mercy. So we always start with what? Grace. God, this is the order of things. God comes to you first, not with condemnation or with judgment. God comes to you first with astonishing amount of grace. And I love this. Jesus will always meet you in your tension, in your sin, in your dehumanizing addictions and habits and your stresses and all the complexities of your life. Jesus will always meet you there. We call that what? We call that grace. But here's also good news. God will never leave you there. In your complexities, in the tensions, in the addictions that you experience in life. So we move from verses four through six, which is all about grace. Remember the spiritual order of Jesus' spirituality. And then we move into verses eight through 10. Jesus is now in a tete-a-tete with uh, Peter. And Jesus essentially invites Peter into confession. And what does Peter say in verses eight through 10? What does he say? Depart from me, Jesus, for I am a sinful man. This is an allusion to Isaiah chapter six and Isaiah, he's in the courts of the Lord and he sees all these exotic creatures flying around and heaven and earth is joining up together. And it's like Spider-Man when at the end, Dr. Strange is trying to keep the universe together and other dimensions coming in. None of you have no idea what I'm referring to. I just watched it a couple nights ago and I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing, right? So heaven is invading our space and Isaiah is blown away by this thing we call glory, which is like the presence of God. And, and he's says, I am a sinful man. So Peter's essentially saying the same thing. What does Jesus do? Jesus invites him into confession and it's in confession as a response to God's grace that Peter is transformed. He's healed, right? Jesus always comes to you and never says, okay, you did that. You did this. You did that. Okay. I'm going to forgive you, but Hey, um, I don't know if I can do a whole lot more in your life. Jesus always comes first before he says anything else to bless us. He speaks blessing and life. He says, I see you. I know you. I love you with an everlasting love. You're my boy. You're my son. You're my daughter. And I'm calling you to bigger things. 
So then we move to verse 10. And so, again, to remind you the spiritual order, we begin with grace, and then we move into confession. Jesus invites Peter into confession of his sins. There's healing, there's transformation. In verse 10, Jesus gives Peter a job. And Jesus says to Peter, do not be afraid. For now on, or from now on, you will be what? You will be catching Men. So what is, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is sending Peter. Or I'll say it this way. Jesus is missionizing Peter's identity. Or I'll say it better. Evangelism is the priority of following Jesus. I'll say it again. Evangelism, the word that we all hate... And we never speak of in our churches anymore. But evangelism is the priority of following Jesus. It gives shape to who we are and our life before God. Without evangelism, we have no following of Jesus. And I'm going to explain that thought. I'm going to tease that out here just a a little bit. But Jesus did not say, hey, Peter, come and follow me. And I'm going to teach you how to read scripture. I'm going to blow your mind. Like we're going to plunge the depths of quantum reality. And I'm going to talk to you about my ontological beingness. Right? And I'm gonna, we're going to deal with the eternal roles of redemption, and I, we're, we're going to go there. And Jesus certainly takes his disciples and teaches them how to read scripture, and he definitely blows their mind. But Jesus did not say, hey, come and follow me, and I'm going to blow your mind by having a good old-fashioned Bible study. And I'm not downplaying Bible studies. We need more Bible studies. We need more Christians who are literate in God's word. My, my goal is that everyone in this room in the next 15, 20 years will become a Bible nerd. That you will just fall in love with scripture. So scripture is absolutely essential to our lives. But Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm going to hey, teach you how to read scripture and I'm going to blow your mind. Come and follow me. Nor did Jesus say, hey, I'm going to teach you how to pray. I'm going to give you authority over governments and demagogues. And you're just going to shoot lightning bolts from heaven over all your enemies. He didn't say any of that. He didn't even say, hey, come and follow me and you're going to be part of a, like a perfect community and you're going to belong and I'm going to create a therapeutic space for you and you're going to, I'm going to give you such like, it's going to be almost like yoga-like and you're going to self-actualize and you're going to have everything you want and I'm going to be your best friend. He didn't say anything like that, right? What it, and community is important. We believe that. Community is absolutely essential when it comes to following Jesus. Prayer is absolutely essential when it comes to following Jesus. The disciples asked Jesus, teach me how to pray. We had a four-month series on prayer, so you can't tell me that I'm downplaying prayer. Jesus doesn't downplay reading scripture. Jesus doesn't downplay prayer. Jesus doesn't download community. Jesus is essentially saying the priority of the kingdom of God is evangelism. And I get it. Some of you right now, Right? You, you got a chill going down your spine. Some of you are like, is it cold in here? Right? We're talking about evangelism, Chris. Really? Can we talk about how God can do this for me? We got to talk about evangelism? Yes, we're going to talk about evangelism. And I'm going to talk about how your wholeness as a follower of Jesus is inextricably caught up or tied to evangelism. Luke chapter 15 
I love this passage. We didn't read it today. It's all about the tax collectors coming to Jesus. They're grumbling. They said, hey, Jesus, why are you hanging out with folk that you shouldn't be hanging out with sinners, that is? So Jesus responds by telling a parable. And he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not lead the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So I just did, I, I did like a little exegetical study in college in, over Luke chapter 15, and one side of the class argued for, oh, this is a typical parable, meaning that shepherds in the ancient um, Near East typically did this, right? They went after the one. I argued the other case, and I think there's more evidence that in the ancient Near East, especially in Palestine, when everyone pretty much lived on subsistence, that these shepherds would not go after one. They would take care of their 99, right? This is income. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So the fact that this shepherd goes after the one and leaves the 99, and he loves the 99. Can I get an amen to that? He wants to take care of the 99, but he's going after the one. That is an atypical response that no shepherd in ancient Palestine ever would have engaged in. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the embodiment of Israel's God and I am defining my ministry as going after the one lost, broken sheep. That is, in fact, and Jesus even says, there is more joy in heaven, which is, let me just say something really quick about heaven. My wife and I had a wonderful conversation as my grandmother passed with our kids about what heaven is like. Heaven is not some um, incorporeal or disembodied place where we fly around as souls. Heaven has its own extension, its own substance. It has a different kind of time, a different kind of matter, a different kind of space, but it is more real than this right here, our space. Right, you can't even imagine how wonderful heaven is. But heaven isn't our ultimate goal. New heavens and new earth is our ultimate goal. Can I get an amen to that? And I want to talk more theology, but I got to bring it back, okay? But heaven, in this real space, we find the angels and the multitudes rejoicing over one sinner who repents. Doesn't rejoice that we all come together, and I'm sure they're kind of happy that we're all here together. Heaven's not rejoicing over my preaching, right? Heaven's not rejoicing that we're all singing on sort of the same key or same note. Heaven's not rejoicing over things that we might rejoice over. Heaven is rejoicing over one sinner who was lost, who had no covenant relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who was broken, whose mind was just in a different reality, and comes back home. That's who heaven rejoices over. So I just want to underscore the point that Jesus is making it very clear that evangelism is the priority of the kingdom of God. Your, and, and, and I'll say it again. Your identity is locked up in evangelism. Luke chapter 19 I love Luke chapter 19. Jesus defines his raison d'etre. I'm using a lot of French words here today. Just his mission. His mission, the mission of Jesus is to what? To seek and to save the lost. 
It's what motivates him. In fact, the logic here is I take this pastiche of three different passages and weave them together. I am making the case that what Jesus is saying, that if we're to follow him, we are called to fish for people. So the logic goes, if we're not fishing for people, then we're actually not following Jesus. You can come to church and sing some great songs and come up front and do the Pentecostal two-step. You can listen to good messages, have some fellowship time, which is all amazing. In no way am I downplaying what we do on Sunday morning. I love the presence of God. I love how he comes and speaks to us and blesses us and gives us life. I love afterwards talking politics, not politics, uh, football and stuff with you guys, right? It's abs- I, I love Sundays, I'll say, are my favorite days. I love it. I love being with you guys. But we have to understand that we can come on a Sunday and we can do all this stuff, but if we've rejected the priority of the kingdom of God, then we just have to, let's just be honest. I, it's important that we're honest in church. We're not really then following Jesus. Some of you are sweating really hard right now, right? It's so important to understand that as Jesus defines his mission as I'm a doctor, not Dr. Dre, but I'm a, the real doctor. I'm the physician. I, I, just go with me. I, laugh. Laugh a little bit more. <laughs> Come on. Like the, he is the physician that what? Seeks to go out and bring healing to those who are sick. In fact, uh, the, words, the words of Michael Green, he says this about evangelism. There are 30, in his, in his opening chapter, he calls it the 30 years that changed the world. And basically his whole presupposition of his book is that evangelism in the early church was absolutely uh, priority. And this is what he writes in the first few paragraphs of his, of his book. Three crucial decades in, the, in world history, that is all it took. In the years between 80, 33, and 64, a new movement called Christianity was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world had ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than 2 billion adherents. It has an incredible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seabed for all of this, the time when it took decisive root, was when in the first three decades, it all began with a dozen men and a handful of women who were given the spirit and who went around talking about Jesus. As Tyler Staten says, I love this, there were two fundamental aspects of the early church. Number one, the pagans would always say to the Christians, why do you love one another? Pagans were astounded by the love that they saw in the Christian community, number one. Number two, what they also saw was that Christians evangelized more than any other religion. In fact, statistically, according to Tyler Staten, Christianity, statistically speaking, has been the most evangelistic religion in world history. Why is that? Well, you can trace that all the way back to Jesus and the priority of evangelism. Well, we all know what the problem of evangelism is, right? We know what the problem is. The problem is we have normalized not doing it. Worse, we have normalized not even talking about talking about Jesus to outsiders. Evangelism is like a side project for the weirdos who go out on the street and put like a sign that says, turn and burn. 
and God hates you, right? Lord have mercy. That's not evangelism. But many of us have thrown the baby out with the bathwater because we've seen evangelism misused and caricatured and parodied. And so we're like saying, that's not me because I'm not a weirdo. I'm a normal person. And then what we try to do is we try to normalize Jesus because we see all the weirdos. And so we go around and we're like saying, oh, Jesus really loves you. And that's absolutely true. But we so, if we're not careful, we so try to normalize him. We forget that Jesus is not normal. Christianity is not normal. Coming back bodily from the dead is not normal. You can't make that more palatable for people living in a very secularized world. That's going to scandalize the Western mind. People don't come back from the dead, but Jesus bodily came back from the dead. That ain't normal. The fact that Jesus said in John chapter 15 that I'm going to lay my life down for my friends and he goes all the way to the cross and dies a suffering death on behalf of his friends. We find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, that Jesus gave up his life for the sins of the world. We find in Romans chapter 5 that God so loved the world that he gave, that's John 3, 16, his one and only son. And in Romans chapter 5, God loved us so much that when we were ungodly, Christ died for us. That's not normal. Jesus walked on water. Jesus spoke to a Mediterranean storm like it was an unruly toddler and said, shut up, essentially, and the, the storm stopped, right? I wish I had that authority over my children. <laughs> Jesus healed the sick. What, what is healing sick bodies? That's, Jesus spoke a word and his word went into the cells, the cellular composition of someone's body and changed the particles and DNA of someone's body. What in the world is going on? I heard a story from one, one pastor uh, who was talking about someone who recently got saved. He read through the book of John. He came to like John 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. And he came back to the pastor and he said, Pastor, why are you not talking about Lazarus every single day? He came back from the dead. Why are we talking about anything else? Christianity is not normal. Why are we trying to normalize it? Well, I think one of the reasons why is we're so polarized by our culture. For example, I'm not hating on our young people, but half, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, okay? But half of young adults in church say it's morally wrong to talk about Jesus as someone of a different faith. Not in this church, of course. Half of young adults in church 28, this is the particular demographic, 28 to about 42. I'm 45, so I don't apply to this generation. Half say it's morally wrong to talk about Jesus to someone of a different faith. Why is that? Well, a lot of it is because we have been catechized by our culture, which simply means our culture's supreme virtue, if you don't know this, is non-judgmentalism. And then you add with that, that the self, this is how we think about our, our, our reality, the self conforms to itself, not to any external norms. So the self is beholden not to anything outside of itself, not to the institution of marriage, not to government, not to pastors, not to the Bible, not to God, not to metaphysics. The self is beholden only to its own self and its preferences. And because of that, evangelism has died. 
Like some, it's so funny. Some people, and this is just an, a, a side issue. Some people come to church and they love the messages and they love experiencing the presence of God and they love the fellowship and they love the community. But when they do something, they don't want the pastor to come and correct them. Is that just a rebellion problem? Well, maybe. And just so you know, I don't go and correct people all the time. Can I get an amen? You guys are amazing, right? So it's not like our job to come and correct all the heretics out there in our churches. That's not what I'm talking about. But I think the reason why so many people struggle with maybe someone outside of themselves bringing adjustment to their lives is because we've been catechized by our culture that I just need to be true to the preferences that my spiritual self has curated because the self is ultimate authority. Nothing outside of me has authority over me. That is American, that's Americana for you. So evangelism, because of our cultural context, has died because of that. So we're left with a Christianity so camouflaged that it costs us nothing and we wonder why we're so powerless. We wonder why we don't have the authority and the power and we don't have the fullness and the wholeness that is promised by Jesus. Well, I think, and this is going to sound a little counterintuitive, I think the reason why we don't have authority and power is because we have taken evangelism and put it to the side. Evangelism is essential to our identity as followers of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to be faithful to him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't believe me, um, here's Bonhoeffer. Quoting Jesus. And if you don't believe Bonhoeffer, here's Jesus, okay? He says, this is quoting Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are light of the world. Your city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Bonhoeffer then says this, that any Israelite could not help but be reminded of Jerusalem by an appeal to such a city. Only now that city is constituted by a community of disciples. Accordingly, the followers of Jesus are no longer faced with a decision. The only decision possible for them has already been made. Now, because they're followers of Jesus, now they have to be what they are or they are not following Jesus. The followers of Jesus are the visible community of faith. Their discipleship is a visible act which separates them from the world or it is not discipleship. And discipleship is, is, is as visible as light in the night, as a mountain in the flatland. To flee into invisibility is to deny the call. Any community of Jesus which wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows Jesus. So we wonder why we have no power, no authority, no joy, no wholeness, no healing. Could it be that we have put to the side or marginalized in our life the most important aspect of who we are as Christians? Okay, so now we're coming to another problem here. Half of you want to get up and leave. Right? Some of you are like, man, I'm sweating. I don't, I don't, I'll come back next week and listen to a better message that makes me feel better, right? And then the other half of you in here are a little bit weirdos. You, you, you're, you're filled with guilt right now. And then you're thinking about, okay, give me a track. I'm going to go to the streets and I'm going to start evangelizing, right? I'm gonna, or I'm going to put on some placard or some sign saying turn and burn or something like that. So both responses, I, I, please hear me. I, this message, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself. 
I'm preaching to myself and I'm preaching to a community that I know is hungry for God today. My heart's desire for you is to experience God's fullness in his life and his blessing and his peace and his joy. And I'm utterly convinced as your pastor that if we refuse the call to participate in evangelism, we will not have what God has promised to give us. And I just want to set the record straight when it comes to evangelism here. I think a lot of, a lot of us feel this pressure. And it's this. We assume that evangelism is about us making things happen. Right? It's like somehow we take the initiative, we're in charge, we see someone in need, and we just, whatever, we preach a message, or we go out and we save and rescue the world. But what we find in Luke chapter 19 is this, and and these are not my words, the words of another pastor, evangelism is not you and I saving the world. Evangelism is an invitation from Jesus to be a part of what he is already doing in the world. Luke chapter 19 says, I love this, and this is, I'm going to read this passage. How many of you think it's important that we read more Bible in church? So this passage out of Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse uh, 1, Luke tells us that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, as Luke tells us, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Everyone say Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Everyone say Seek. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So we ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, all the people that saw it because they really don't like Zacchaeus. They actually hate him because he's a tax collector. And they said, he has gone in to be the guest, Jesus that is, of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And then Jesus says, the son of man, referring to himself, has come to what? To seek, to save the lost. Okay, so Zacchaeus is like all of us. Zacchaeus assumed that he was taking the initiative to go and to observe what Jesus was doing. It says that Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming to Jericho and the text is framed around this this one word, to seek. So Zacchaeus thinks that he's in charge, he's taking the initiative, he's seeking Jesus out. Jesus flips the script, looks up to Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, I heard about you before I even came to Jericho. Hey, little man, right? I love you. Come down the tree. I want to come to your house today. And then Jesus ends by saying, I have come to seek and to save the lost. The point that is being made is that We don't seek God out. It's God who seeks us out. 
We're not the ones taking the initiative when it comes to grace, when it comes to our spiritual life, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to all the things that God wants to do in our life. No, 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 no. It's God who is already at work within creation. Is God already at work at your place of work? Is God already at work at your home, in your neighborhood? It's God at work in our world. And evangelism is simply an invitation for you and I to participate with Jesus in what he is already doing. Jesus did not not at the close of the canon, right around 400 AD, decide, I'm going to stop seeking and saving the lost. Heaven is going to stop rejoicing over when one sinner repents. Jesus is like reneging in heaven. Okay, no more. Evangelism is not the most important thing. What's most important is poorly timed messages and small groups that bore us to death and coming together with imperfect people and being totally disempowered. That's not what Jesus ever said. Jesus made it very clear from the outset that the priority of the kingdom will always be evangelism. It is Jesus who is seeking out the lost, the broken, the addict, the prostitute, we find it. The least, the lost, the people that we don't even like care for. The Democrats, the nihilists, the Republicans, the neocons, the illiberal left. The, the, I, mean, I could just go on and on. The libertarians, that person, that person, that person you don't even care about, that person you really despise on social media. God is looking and searching and pursuing everyone who does not have a covenant relationship with him. This is the priority of the kingdom of God. It's not just Bible study, and they're absolutely important. It's not just prayer, and that's absolutely important. It's not just coming up and having a really good encounter with the Holy Spirit on a Sunday morning, and that is absolutely important. The most important thing, though, that shapes our identity, our ethics, our eschatology, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of the future, is that God places priority on pursuing those who do not know him and he's inviting us into this grand rescue project of reaching people who do not know him. I'm all about participating in that and I want our church and our community to be all about participating in the life of Jesus. Are you hearing me this morning? So how do we do this evangelism, right? Some of you are still scared. Like, oh my God, what are we going to do, right? Do I have to understand the ontological trinity and I have to break down the difference between essence and subsistence? Oh my God, how am I going to do that? Like some of you are like, you're, you're worried about this big word. Like it's an, it's an intimidating word. Like do I have to come up with a homily and do I have to break down what the gospel is and I got to preach it in front of 5,000 people, right? Not necessarily. For some of you, maybe God's calling you to that. But evangelism at its basic root is not just preaching a message. I want to make the case it's just invitational. So we come to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, or excuse in John chapter, um, yeah, John chapter 1, verse uh, 1 through 14, we have the prologue. And we have this elevated prose. And we have John telling us that Jesus is the logos, right? Which simply means that he is the chief 
person who holds the entire universe together. So what John is doing, I've talked about this before, is taking Greek Stoicism and turning, on, turning itself on its head because Greek Stoicism assumed that the Logos was this indifferent principle that held everything together, like a universal consciousness that really wasn't conscious, but held all of the supernovas and stars and humanity together. Well, John turns that upside down, flips it, and says the Logos is the eternal word. His name is Jesus. And he's the one, the person, he is the person who now is fleshed out among us, tabernacle among us. He's a living, walking, breathing tabernacle figure, right? That's what John tells us in his elevated prose, in his prologue. And then John then transitions us into verse 38 and tells us that this living, breathing logos, the tabernacle made flesh, this is profound, is now approached by two disciples. And these two disciples come up to Jesus and basically said, uh, hey, we, we think you're kind of cool and we like what you're doing, uh, so we're thinking about following you. Jesus did not stop and say, okay, before we do that, we need to talk about how I eternally subsist with the Father and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to break down the ontological Trinitarian dimensions of my beingness And once you get that, then you can follow me. Jesus, the Logos, who holds the universe together by his word, simply says, come and see. We go from elevated prose to ordinary conversation. Come and see. And I get this from Tyler Staten, and I think he's absolutely right. Come and see is just simply... It's, it's, it's an invitation to participate in the life of God. That's all Jesus does. He invites them to come and see. We, in other words, we are called as followers of Jesus. If we're serious about evangelism, we must become serious about learning to become invitational people. What does that mean? Well, it's funny. Um, my wife and I, as it's not funny, but as my wife and I were talking this week, as my grandmother passed away, we were talking about heaven and we're talking about how this life matters and how people matter and how my grandmother lived a full life and she was amazing and she's in heaven right now in the presence of Jesus and she's just filled with, with so much joy. And so we were, we were pondering that and the realities of that. And then we started pondering how my, my grandmother's life just had so much value. In the words of one author, every person, everyone say every person. Every person is a universe. What does that mean? Well, he actually goes on to say a constellation of meaning. Every person is a constellation of meaning. What is he trying to say poetically? What is he trying to say? He's simply saying that each person on this planet has infinite value. Infinite value. And so as we were talking about this, we're like, oh my gosh, we just, our hearts, and we, we, we actually prayed about this. Holy Spirit, come and teach us how to become more invitational. Teach us how to see people as you see them with such infinite value. So as we begin to see people with infinite values, the Holy Spirit gives us his, his perspective. How do we become invitational people? Well, I think it looks like this. I'm growing in this. My wife is absolutely amazing. She is, she's an invitational person par excellence. A couple nights ago, we were walking and uh, we saw an, an 
um, elderly woman, probably in her um, 70s or 80s, and she stopped us. She was walking her dog. We got into a conversation. We were really polite. I was really polite. But I, to be honest, I was thinking in my head, I want to go home and watch um, basketball. Okay, please forgive me. And so my wife is so intuitive, totally just connected with God, right? And so uh, we get done with the conversation. We kind of, we, we have our, we talked about our kids, a little bit about our story. Uh, we then start, as we're finished with our conversation, we, we start heading home. And then my wife turns to me and she says, Chris, I just, I got to go talk to her. I just feel like the Holy Spirit wants me to connect with her. So I'm like, okay, great. Love you. I'll see you in 30 minutes. That's a, God, a God's honest truth. I got to be honest. It's what I love about my wife and I'm learning from her. So she she stops, she turns around. It's so disruptive. This is what I just love. I'm like, oh my God, what is she going to think? Are we coming after her or what? So I go the other way with two of our kids. She has the other twins. She talks to this wonderful woman, shares her story. This woman opens up, shares her story. My wife says, you know what? I think we're going to be friends. And she talks to this particular woman about heaven, about Jesus. It was an amazing God encounter conversation. That's, that's invitation. Invitation is simply recognizing where God is at work, being sensitive to that, and then being obedient to the voice of God to speak into the lives of people that God has directed our hearts to. Now, some of you are like, I just don't like getting in an awkward conversation. I'm, I'm tired of that. I don't care. I don't care if I just like, me, Chris, you, I don't know, go to church. <laughs> If I have to do that, I have to do that. Why are we so afraid? Why are we playing it safe? Why are we living as incognito Christians? Like even if we're clumsy in our conversation, I'd rather be a clumsy conversationalist talking about the mercy of God than not doing anything about the brokenness in our world. And I do, I fell at this a lot, but, but there are times when God gives me opportunities and I just open my heart to those opportunities. For example, uh, a couple years ago, or actually about a year ago, went to a particular grocery store and uh, the clerk was checking my food out and uh, she asked me what I did for a living. And I said, well, I'm a 45-year-old man raising seven kids. That's what I do for a living, right? So she's like, you have seven kids? And I'm like, I know, I look 32, right? It's like... <laughs> It's amazing. Actually, 26, you know, uh, and she, and so we started talking about kids and I, I started telling her about, I had three sets of twins and she's like, how in the world do you do it? I don't, my wife does it. And then I started talking about the miracle of getting pregnant and adopting our beautiful three children. And then my beautiful single daughter, Whitney, and I just love her so much. And she's amazing. We just talked about kids and then it just happened within seconds. Four other clerks, it was late at night, four other clerks come over and they're surrounding me. I'm a space guy. How many space guys are you like your space? I mean, you know, you, you need space. I'm literally, people are breathing down my throat in the middle of COVID. I'm like, you're going to give me tuberculosis or something. <laughs> Back off. Right? I totally lose my evangelistic like fervor in that moment. But no, just surrounded by four or five clerks. And I'm talking to them about the miracle that God gave me. I didn't break down doctrine. I just simply said, hey, this is what happened in our life. If you want to check out uh, our church, it's Capital Church. 
Just come and check it out. Come and see. What does come and see mean for you? What, is, what does it mean to be an invitational person? It's just simply recognizing when the Holy Spirit puts someone on your heart, obeying the voice of God, and then just stepping out. I don't know what I'm going to say. The good news is none of us know what we're going to say. And it's, it's so fun. Not in the moment. It's scary and horrifying, but it's fun ex post facto to look back when you take a step of faith and to see how God directs your conversation. So what does invitation look like? It might look like inviting someone to church on a Sunday. Well, Chris, I don't want you to get up and talk about really big words because that intimidates people. So I don't want to invite them to Sundays. Well, forget you. Or, or invitation could look like bringing them to your small group. Or invitation could be like going hiking, you know, with a bunch of your friends. Like, I don't even know why you would do that. But hey, let's, let's go hiking, right? I, I, I love hiking. I do it once every three years. It's amazing. <laughs> invite, invite. Like, I love, I love the video that we just saw and how, how Joel King just goes up and says, you're going to be my best friend. I mean, it's, it's amazing. We need to be more like Joel King. We need to be more like Kelly Wilde, right? We need to be more like some of you who just, like, and you're not just extroverts. You're inspired by the Holy Spirit and your hearts are open and you just want to connect people to God. In other words, invitation is not quoting four spiritual laws and deconstructing four spiritual laws and analyzing it. It's not taking someone through the Cappadocian fathers and breaking down the ontological trinity and the social dimensions of that and comparing that to the economic trinity and how Augustine thought of that and all of his flowery language that he used to describe the Trinitarian community of self-giving love and delight. You don't have to do that. And everyone said, Amen. One day, maybe. But what you can do is say, come and see. What you can do is invite them to a Sunday morning. You can't invite them to a Sunday night. You can't invite them to our Easter egg um, extravaganza. Invite them to your home. Open your house. Go to your neighbor. Do something as the Holy Spirit leads you. We are called more than anything else to be an invitational people, not an institutional people where we just simply maintain our way of life. Where we just live in maintenance mode. Where we just kind of pray and we read our Bibles and that's about it. And we talk about how it's all bad out there in the world. Come on, somebody. Evangelism is the priority of God to reach people. And is God inviting us to participate with him in his action, in his hunting down, in his pursuit of people that desperately need salvation, who desperately need healing, who desperately need the transformation of the Holy Spirit. So the question that I want to ask you today as I close is this. Are you an invitational person? There's no shame, no judgment, no guilt. Are you an invitational person? In other words, are you in any given week recognizing the voice of the Holy Spirit and opening your heart to what he wants to do through you? This is where I end. Because you're thinking this question because this is what I think. I always think about the why. Why? Why do I need to be an invitational person, Chris? I'm such an introvert. How many introverts do we have here today? Most of you are introverts. You're just introverted. You didn't even raise your hand because you're too scared to raise your hand. Yeah, it's just so funny. 
That was, that was a trick question, right? Because <laughs> no one's going to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you're, maybe some of you are thinking, I'm an introvert. I just don't, ah, I don't, I feel really uncomfortable talking to people about my faith. And I just, I don't fully have my head around it. I love God. He's done so much for me. I don't, why is this so important? Well, number one, it's so important because God loves people. And God sought you. Right? So out of love, out of self-giving love, we participate in the love of God by opening our hearts to the direction of the Holy Spirit to speak into the lives of people that really need Jesus, number one. But the corollary of that is, is this. As I mentioned at the very beginning, and this is where I close, the priority of Jesus is evangelism. If that is true, then evangelism is absolutely essential for your spiritual growth. It's absolutely essential for your wholeness. I know I'm using therapeutic speak here right now, but it's, to be an invitational kind of person is to engage in wholeness. One pastor said this, is like, I wish people would come to me and ask me the question, what's the most important thing that I can do to grow spiritually? If you were to come and ask me that question today, or maybe even a year ago, I would have said, obviously you really need to engage in this baby Bible reading plan. I can help you in maybe this different kind of prayer. Or honestly, you need to come to church more, right? One, come to church one time out of uh, eight weeks is not enough. Can I get an amen? Like I would really focus on, we need to belong in community. I would have said all of those things, but now I'm coming to the point and I'll still talk about those stuff, depending on the circumstances, depending on, you know, who I'm talking to. But now I'm realizing probably the, the, the greatest impact in your life as it relates to spiritual growth will come when you make a decision to become an invitational kind of person. Because here's, this is the logic. When you make a decision to become an invitational person, you're going to need God to act. You're, you're going to have to trust God more than you've ever had in your life. You're going to have to take some risks. Is that God? I hope that's you, Lord. Okay. Right? You're going to have to step out. You're going to have to give sacrificially. You're going to have to get out of your comfort. Come on, somebody. You're going to have to get out of yourself. And when you learn to become an invitational person, you are taking risk. And I am more convinced than ever that miracles absolutely require risk-taking. If we live in a miraculous kind of church, I think it's the case that we have people that are playing it safe. Jesus in Luke chapter 15 does not play it safe. He atypically, as a shepherd, goes after the one. And we're called not to play it safe. And when we don't play it safe, and when we get out of our comfort, and when we put our trust in Jesus, and when we rely on his voice, and we start talking to people. Come on, somebody. We start giving more sacrificially. That's when we see God release power. That's when we, when we begin to see God release miracles. That's when we see God release his presence into our lives. Your greatest growth is when you open your heart to the Holy Spirit and you simply say to someone, come and see. And however you say it, 
You open your heart, their heart is open. And when you participate with what God is already doing and you see the miracle of salvation, come, whoa. And you see a heart change and you're committed to this very specific person that the Holy Spirit has led you to. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. You will experience so much joy. You will experience so much wholeness. You will experience so much life and life more abundantly. Again, let me say it again. I believe our wholeness as followers of Jesus is dependent on becoming invitational people. Recognizing where God is at work and following him. Amen. Jesus did not play it safe. As I mentioned, he went after the one. So in closing, where do we get the confidence? And I'm way too late. Are you, can I give me just two more minutes? In closing, and again, this, is, this message is not original to me, but this is something that's just, it's, it's been in my heart for some time. Um, how do we get the confidence to do this? Well, I, I think if we want to become invitational people, we have to remember who we are. We have to remember our identity in Christ. Ephesians chapter one, and I just want to remind everyone in this room who you are. You are blessed by God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. You know God chose you? God chose you in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Do you know in love today, God predestined you for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. I was hoping for a really good charismatic amen to that. That you know you're blessed in the beloved, you belong in the beloved, that God has lavished his grace on you. You've been redeemed by his blood. You've been forgiven of your trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon you. Come on, somebody. In all wisdom that you are located in Christ Jesus, you've been promised with the Holy Spirit. You've been guaranteed an inheritance. You know your future. You're a saint, even though you're far from perfect and you've failed many times, you are a saint through the grace of God that the immeasurable greatness of God's power is at work in you who believe according to the work that was worked out in Christ. And it's Christ who was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the heavenly uh, places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. It's Jesus who has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You are a part of all of that. And I could go on and on and on. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have the victory and the victory is our faith. We know our future. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious. We've been lavished with grace. Come on, somebody. That God's trademark work is steadfast love and mercy. And that we're located in Christ. You've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I was hoping that this would be exciting to somebody. That is our defining reality. That's what defines us. And when we begin to remember who we are, that is when we can learn to become invitational people. And just begin to say to the world, come and see. Come and see. Psalm 139 says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I love this. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. In, in, in other words, as the, as the psalmist wrote, and this is where I close, and I want to pray for all of us. He said, God saw your unformed substance in the womb and that he wrought all your genetic makeup, your DNA, your personality, all your idiosyncrasies, all your quirks, 
right? Everything about you, God saw it and he wrought you together from kidneys to heart to hair color to personality. And guess what? The logic is that he placed you, and I get this from one pastor, but I think it's so true, that he placed you based on Psalm 139 in this specific time with your specific personality to reach the specific people that God has surrounded you. You are not an accident. You are not a quirk in the cosmos. Come on, somebody. You were specifically put together by God himself for 2022 and for the people that God is going to bring into your life. God wants you, in other words, to participate with the personality that he's given you and the gifts and the talents that he has bestowed on you in what he is doing in the world. That is evangelism. I close with this, 56%, I was shocked a couple years ago. I was told that 56% of Ada County self-identifies as non-religious. In fact, we're one of the least churched areas in the nation. We need 200 more churches, at least, over the next five years, if we're going to reach all the people that are migrating to this beautiful land. Thank you. You're welcome. In other words, Californians, you're welcome. (laughs) Beautiful place to live, right? But we need more churches, yes. And we need to send more people out to plant more churches, yes. But we also need the churches now to rediscover the priority of evangelism. We are called to recognize where God is at work and to participate with the Holy Spirit to bring his reign, his love, his blessing into people. And everyone said amen. Let me pray for you. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, go ahead and take your hand, put it on your heart. Father, I thank you for this quick moment. Holy Spirit, you would come and you would set us free from a sense of inadequacy or maybe insecurity about evangelism. Lord, I thank you that you would begin to show us, Lord, burn it into our heart and into our minds how essential being an invitational kind of person is. Father, I thank you that, Jesus, you are reigning over all of creation and that you're inviting us to be a part of this grand rescue project. So I just thank you that we would just open our hearts by your grace to recognize this week where you want us just to say, come and see. Where you want us to invite people, maybe it's to church on Sunday, maybe it's a small group, maybe it's into our home, whatever it is. Holy Spirit, I thank you through your creativity and through the gifts that you've given us and our personality that we would open ourselves up to your work in our city. I thank you, Jesus, that you're full of love and you're the God who goes after the the one lost little lamb. Lord, it's our desire to do the same. And I just declare over this church, we will be an invitational church. I thank you that you're changing our perspective today. I thank you that you're setting in motion a new new way of thinking about who we are and our identity in Christ. I thank you that you're opening the doors of the church 
And we're going to see an inc incredible miracles this year. Everyone say miracles. Incredible, incredible miracles and a, just a release of God's power as we obey the voice of the Holy Spirit as we speak into the lives of outsiders, broken people, people don't know you. We thank you, Father, for your courage and grace. In the mighty name of Jesus, I bless every son and daughter in this room. I thank you that your words would get down into our bones, into our hearts. We would think about this all week long. To your glory, in your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.